Hi guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And welcome to No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So Chris, let me ask you today how you're doing. What's new? I um, actually got out in golf this morning. Uh, I'm stuck in quarantine for two weeks, so I've been golfing a lot. But it's things are going well. It's my daughter's first birthday tomorrow. I'm going to celebrate that. Uh, but how about you? What have you been up to? All right. Well, happy birthday. And uh, golf, man. Yeah, you've gotten out more than me. I've only played two rounds so far this season, but um, I'm looking forward to getting back into it. Yeah, I've gotten out 20 times since coronavirus hit. So okay, <laughs> I have a, I have a mean golf farmer stand. So <laughs> see, I have that year round whether I'm playing golf or not. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, for our Twitter roundup, before we get into our next book, the third option, we heard from Mika, a listener in New Zealand. I was pretty excited when you texted me about this. Yeah, right. I got excited too. And um, her Twitter handle is at Mika, M-E-E-K-A underscore N-Z. She tweeted that she was bummed because it was a Monday in New Zealand a few weeks back. She wanted to listen to the next No Limits Mitch Rap podcast episode, but that pesky thing, time zones, uh, got in the way and she realized, oh no, it won't actually come out my time until Tuesday. And so I went ahead, released the episode early for her, and she was very grateful. So for all our other listeners out in uh, Australasia and Oceania, you got that episode uh, a day early. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) We also got uh, another very nice email to highlight a fan, Pamela. She gave kudos to Kyle Mills for keeping the series going after Vince passed away. She talked about how hard that moment hit her, just like all of us. And she's excited to dig into some of the earlier Kyle Mills pre-rap books. So some of the ones he wrote on his own uh, before it was even considered that he would take over. I'm going to do the same. I actually... Yeah, me too. I just ordered a copy of Rising Phoenix, Kyle's first ever novel. And so I'm probably going to get to that. It's the Mark Beeman series. I'm hoping to get to that uh, in just a few weeks here. Yeah, I'm hoping to read that hopefully before maybe an interview. We'll see. I'm hoping we can get a special guest uh, on the show sometime soon. It'd be great to, to read Rising Phoenix, you know, as soon as possible. Yes. All right. Well, what are we covering today, Chris? Well, today we are diving into Vince Flynn's third book, The Third Option. And today it's going to be our plot summary episode. We're going to break down the plot, highlight a couple of scenes that we enjoyed, and then we're going to finish this two-part podcast tomorrow with our breakdown of the book, our review, zero-sum game. Uh, So look out for that one. But today is all focused on the plot. All right, let's get into it. Uh, On Goodreads, this one had a score of 4.25, slightly lower than the first two we read, but still pretty good score. The Goodreads summary is short. It reads, Mitch Rapp, CIA's top counterterrorism operative is sent on his final mission. His target, a German industrialist who has been selling sensitive equipment to the world's most notorious sponsors of terrorism. Very short. <laughs> Probably only the third of the book, <laughs> but uh, short and sweet. Get you hooked. Uh, and I thought in the beginning of this book, you know, we've sort of been breaking down both the dedication and the prelude. Uh, this book was written for Vince's wife. And actually, we just had the anniversary of Vince Flynn's passing away. 
Yeah, and so a very nice dedication, again, to another family member like we've seen. Uh, I think the last one, Transfer of Power, was dedicated to his parents. Yeah, so um, really nice and just uh, hope the family can find peace, you know, since 2013 and and what they had to go through. So let's get into this prelude a little bit for the third option. It, it starts out by saying, there exists in America a silent and invisible order made up of former soldiers, intelligence officers, and diplomats. In Washington, they are everywhere and they are nowhere. The average person never sees them, never pauses to think about them, never notices the hand that may have, they may have had in a seemingly orderly death. The drug overdose of a lobbyist reported on the page B of the Washington Post Metro section, or the suicide of a colonel in the United States Army, or the fatal mugging of a White House staffer. It is the world of covert operations, a very real but unseen part of our government's foreign and sometimes domestic policy. It's bigger than one person. It's the third option, and is the one not always used by wise and honorable men. Man. Every time Vince gets me with these preludes or these uh, prologues, I'm hooked. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we get a clear, concise description, very compelling, of what the third option is. You know, the title of the book uh, makes me want to pick it up. If I pick up a book, read that, I can't put it down. It's a marketing gem. I'm going to buy it <laughs> 10 times out of 10. You know, one line that stood out to me is... Uh, you know, the murder of a White House or the fatal mugging of a, of a White House staffer. I mean, I can't think of the countless times I see on the news what I think of as a, as a random crime, and it just has me rethinking. Is that little headline I saw that happened two neighborhoods over, is that some third option shady business going on? <laughs> like 2016, this news story broke about Seth Rich. He was a 27-year-old intern, I think, working – Right. For, for the, the DNC. Dem- yeah, the Democratic National Committee. And he was out drinking one night. You know, it's a neighborhood, Bloomingdale, which it's a little sketchy, right? But I mean, lately it's come around. You know, the murder rate has definitely gone down over the decades. But he was killed on the street by two men and they didn't take his wallet, his phone, or anything. And so rumors quickly started circling. You know, was he involved in some suspicious activity? And, you know, some conservatives started saying he was about to post corruption at the DNC and he had files on Hillary Clinton's campaign and he was going to take him to the FBI. I mean, it all ended up being hearsay and fake news, right? Just conspiracy theories. But now I'm like, how many other countless stories like that were actually third option operations? Right. It gets you thinking it's like, that's not is that's not real, but then you're like, or was it, you know, I, I consider my, I don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist per se, but I, I like reading about conspiracy theories. You know, they're just interesting to me. Uh, half the time it's because I find them super laughable and you get a, you get a good chuckle out of, sure, you know, sure. some, some bogus stuff that people, people put out. It just gets you thinking, get your, like, you know, your mind going about this world of, of clandestine services and, and and stuff and i think that's what the prelude does really well it's very similar to what the prelude in transfer of power did with like i had to change the descriptions of the white house you know it really it, it, it's a good hook it's a really yep. good hook and it's it's everlasting like i'm thinking the third option now maybe like the fourth option would be something with this whole like social media propaganda campaign and you know we heard about the russian bots influencing the election or influencing public opinion like 
is that the fourth option now? This like high tech social media propaganda campaign that governments might be sanctioning to influence public opinion in other countries. Like this third option is going to take on a different form as history progresses. Yeah. To me, to me right now, this whole social media fake news thing is it's cyber warfare. It's cyber war. It's, exactly. It's it's the next the next world war won't be played on the battlefield. It'll be played in the in the cloud. I feel like Kyle Mills, you know, if he's listening, <laughs> there's a 1% chance of that. He's got a book title, The Fourth Option. <laughs> the Fourth Option. It'll be all about like some rogue cloud. And Marcus Demond becomes, you know, Secretary General of the UN and just calls himself a dictator and can control everybody's network. There you go. I don't, I, I don't want that. I love Marcus. But on the on the subject of this prelude, Vince quickly expands upon it right in the beginning of the book. He comes back and explains how the country had shifted to using the third option. Quote, the first option of diplomacy wasn't doing the job. And the second option, a military force, was ill-suited to fight an enemy that lived and worked among innocent civilians. So America's leaders were left with only one choice, the third option. Covert actions would be taken. Money would be funneled into black operations that would never see the light of day, much less congressional oversight or the scrutiny of the press. A clandestine war would be mounted, and the hunters would become the hunted. Can't put it better than that, right, Chris? No, you can't. That's... It's a good quote. So we, we start off the book, uh, Rapp's opening scene. Uh, the CIA sends their number one counterterrorism uh, agent, Mitch Rapp, to assassinate this Count Heinrich Hagenmiller. Uh, and it's Mitch Rapp's last assignment, or, or so he says. And he, but he has, a, he has a bad feeling that something's going to go wrong. But nevertheless, he's joined by some other CIA agents, this couple, uh, Jane and Jim Hoffman, who he's never met before, but he, he mentions that he believes that he, they either one or both have had special ops training. Uh, and, you know, in the beginning, everything appears to be, you know, going fine. Uh, they get into the Count's house really easily, posing as German police. Count appears, and then boom, Mitch takes him out. He, he kills him, and then he doesn't actually kill anybody else. He, he incapacitates the bodyguard and the butler, I believe, but then everything changes pretty quickly when Mitch turns around and Jane Hoffman shoots him twice in the chest, which will be her fatal flaw because she should have shot him in the head. But there were a couple of details that I think make this even more exciting. I feel like that story could be written by any author, but I love what Vince does. He has this weird interaction where you mentioned the foreboding feeling that something's going to go wrong. He's in the car with the Hoffmans. And it turns out that the man, the husband, is supposed to go in with Rap, and Rap requests, I think, at the last minute that Jane come in with him to right. make it more believable that she's his guest. And there's some apprehension, and he senses like, why do they feel weird about that? If they're operatives, they should both be at the same level. Either one of them can do this. Right, and Mitch is obviously the one in charge. So, like, if he says some, he if he says something, like they should not give him any any you know back talk. Yeah, but they hesitate and, you know, we're wondering why. And so that's a, another tidbit that Vince works in is Jane asks earlier, oh, are you wearing any Kevlar? Do you have any body armor? And Mitch right. tells her no. And so there's a couple of these clues. And there's one other clue. When Mitch is doing recon the night before, uh, he's in the woods leading up to the Count's house. He's looking at the windows and everything. He just has a bad feeling someone or something is, is behind him or with him or following him. And he turns around to check. He doesn't really see anything, but... Man, Vince is working in all these little weird uh, oddities. 
And all of those little details are going to add up. I really like this opening scene. And I think that Vince does a really good job at setting up this whole sense of foreboding that, that you, you mentioned. And, you know, all the little details of Mitch walking through the forest and the, the preparation for the mission. I like those little details that are, that are woven in during this part. And then also I thought the other interesting part that sort of you know, boom hits us right away, which I mentioned earlier, is this the fact that this is going to be Mitch's last mission. And it, it, he kind of mentioned it early on in Transfer Power when he's like flying back from Bonder Boss. And you know, he's like, I, I really should, I can't be doing this. And But here we get it stated like, this is my last mission. Well, he's even stronger in that conviction now that he's with Anna, right? He right. met her in Transfer Power. And so... He even says, just on page five, in fact, this would be his last job. He had met the right woman the previous spring. It was time to settle down. The CIA didn't want to let him go, but that was tough. He had already given enough. Ten years of doing what he did for a living was a lifetime. He was lucky to be getting out in one piece and with a marginally sound mind. And those ten years, Chris, that he's saying, you know, he did this for a living, we're going to learn about more. You know, it's only the second Mitch Rapp book. And we're getting this backstory that he's a veteran and we already know he's this expert. We're going to learn a little bit more of what went on in those earlier days, the backstory of American Assassin and how the Orion team was formed. Yeah, I think that this is one of the, I don't know, one, one of the themes of this book, this like growing tension between him and what he wants. And it's a, it's a theme that is prevalent, I think, pretty much through the rest of the story, you know, up until the most recent book. I find it interesting that this is also this it's a major theme in the the Brad Thor books with Scott Harvath. And I can imagine that this is probably something that these real life operators, it's gotta be hard to have a family um, when you're a spy, when you're on the ground. Uh, and even when you get out, you know, because as we find out later in the story, there are other, you know, there are assassins that can be called up when, when you think you're out of the game and, it's an interesting theme that Vince is sort of woven in through all of his books. You know, that's something I might want to come back to on the next episode is, is that another form of the third option, the getting out, right? It seems like either option one, you're in it for life. Once you're trained by the CIA, you're an operative like rap, you're in it for life. Option two, which he's longing for is a normal family life now that he's met Anna and wants to settle down. And neither of those are really possible, right? They conflict. And what's cool is Stansfield finds the third option for rap, which is this, and when we get to the end, this way for him to get out of the dangerous clandestine operations, but not really get out because he could just be a full-fledged employee of the CIA. And so I feel like Stansfield is offering Mitch that as a third option as well. Right. I wonder if that was a layer that Vince had... uh, Yeah, I never thought about that before. That's a cool point. Well, anyway, we're back in Germany and Mitch is laying inside the mansion next to the count that he just uh, assassinated. But it turns out he was wearing his armor. Thankfully, he, he had a bad feeling about the Hoffmans and he put the armor on and he's winded, but he's perfectly fine. The problem now is an escape plan. His blood is on the floor. His DNA would be linked to the crime scene. And he needs a cover to get out. So pretty ingenious thinking on his feet. He looks around and sees the drapes and the beautiful artwork and this old wooden mansion and um, decides to set it on fire. Uh, That way his DNA would be erased. 
and he would have a distraction to steal a car and uh, and escape the property. I thought it was very smart to burn the house, get rid of evidence, sort of clears everybody looking in one direction, um, while he can then escape with a with a car from this party in a different direction. Yeah. What we do find out though is the the count was a big art collector and a priceless artifacts, which is going to link to another character, the Secretary of State of the U.S., who is also an art collector. And so there's going to be some tension between um, these two individuals and respecting each other's art collections, one being burned. And so it's going to lead to some suspicion of why is the Secretary of State so involved in this? If it was just art, I get it. But there must be another layer of why he's so interested in the Count beyond just right. this art collection. Mitch's escape is pretty awesome. I don't know about you, but this is where I really started feeling like Mitch is definitely a not just an assassin, but a well-trained all-around CIA spy. Yeah, I agree. I think the whole scene from waking up and going, hijacking the car, going to the airport to sort of, you know, if there, if he, because at this point he thinks that he's been terminated by his own government and especially because Hoffman is the one, you know, the Hoffmans who are also part of the CIA have, has done it, right? He thinks that this, his own government has let him out to dry. And so if, if they are looking for him in, in that, in, in that case, then they're going to be, if he does escape or whatever, they're going to be having everybody on all hands on deck, which actually is not what's going on, right? There is a small fraction that's looking for him or once they've realized that he's not dead, they're looking for him. But so he takes all these steps, all these clandestine measures to get people off his, off his scent, goes to the airport to fake him that way, then changes his, uh, his gait, his appearance, you know, how he walks, gets in a taxi, then forces the taxi driver to then take him to a hotel. Is not like, obviously uses the taxi driver, ties him up, but doesn't kill him. And it makes him very clear about that. And then he's able to buy uh, bike equipment and then because he you know he's a very acclaimed cyclist and triathlete so he knows about this bike route this group of, of people that make this route and he knows an easy way that he can get across the border into france and ultimately get home right so i really like that whole this whole scene of, of from from germany to france and it really reminded me of we're going to talk about this a little more in the next episode but it reminded me of uh like robert ludlam and the jason bourne stories and like this is what clandestine is it's not like action but it's cool spy craft yeah rap thinking maybe i can't trust kennedy and my bosses anymore is very much making me think of uh the bourne series and the bourne movies even and so i agree with that and another reason he feels that way is he just told kennedy he wanted out he just opened right. up to his boss that this is my last mission. And she was telling him, hold on, Mitch, like, before you make that decision, I want to talk to you. I have something to tell you. And he's kind of like, doesn't sound right. So in his mind, the CIA turned on him and activated that what second option of you can't retire peacefully and go have a family. You're either with us or if you say you want out, we have to terminate you. And so, yeah, he's taking all the measures he can to protect himself. The bike scene is pretty cool. I love how he used to ride with this group. I think he said he had familiarity yeah. with this Peloton, this, this group of cyclists. I love in the ride into France, he knows where the border is and he knows the guards there have the authority to stop them. But he also knew the gravitas of this cycling enthusiasm. And he's like, the guards just usually cheer us on. And, right. uh, you know, they're so excited to see the cyclists because that's a sport they love. And this one guard tries to stop them, I guess, because 
they know there's a fugitive out there they're looking for with the assassination in Germany, but the bikes, the cyclists just give them a look and brush them off and are like, who are you to tell us we can't cross the border? This is our biking route. That wouldn't happen now. That wouldn't happen now. Well, with the Schengen agreement, who knows how borders are. Uh... Oh, true. This, that's back before there was, was the agreement, right? So we have other players that we are introduced to that are intricate to our, interwoven into our story, right? And so one of those players are the CIA and, and specifically Thomas Stansfield and Irene Kennedy. And so the Jansons report back to the CIA that Mitch is dead. Irene Kennedy, she's not sure. So she goes to visit her boss and to talk to Thomas Stansfield at his home. And that, but Stansfield thinks that they need to wait to get more information and news about Mitch. And they need to really find out who their leak is and why, how does the secretary of state know that they had a, they were conducting surveillance on the count, right? The secretary of state releases that in a white house meeting. So we do see president Hayes, who was one of the, the winners of uh, transfer of power, you know, that right. we thought was a strong character. Hayes is meeting with the German ambassador in the white, in the oval office. And um, eventually point blank, the German ambassador is wondering, were you watching Count Hagenmiller? Now that he's assassinated, were you in any way involved? And the Secretary of State Middleton did know and did uh, tip him off to say the CIA was watching him. And so President Hayes comes out and says, yes, we were watching him, but we didn't have anything to do with his death. And the president's like, why did Secretary of State Middleton know that? And or why did he tip off the German ambassador about that? Right. So it sounds like something fishy. You mentioned the Jansons. That's the um, the real name of the couple that was with Rap. Who Rap was told that they were the Hoffmans. That was their alias when they were in the field with Rap. But yeah, Stansfield and Kennedy agree. We need to debrief the Jansons and see why they did this because we're hearing Rap is dead. So from the Jansons' point of view, they were on the scene too. What happened? What went wrong? And if the Jansons were involved, kind of find out who put them in that position. Who are they working for? Kennedy says, I should be the one to go do this because we think we have a leak. We think we have a mole with the secretary of state knowing too much. How is that possible? And Kennedy says, I have to go investigate because I can't trust anyone. And Stansfield says, I can trust somebody. It might be more dangerous than you think. If Iron Man went down and there are reports that Rap was injured in this, I can't have you going alone. And guess who Stansfield's uh, ace in the hole is that he calls up to go intercept the Jansons? Our blonde-haired assassin. Our blonde-haired assassin. Who, by, by the way, was he missing in Transfer of Power? I feel like... He was. I, I believe he was. Yeah, Scott Coleman was not involved in the SEAL team that uh, eventually raided the White House in Transfer of Power, so... Well, because he, he's out, so... Yeah. But his uh, his organization, true, they're not official. He He started that company of... You know, retired seals. He's retired seals. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'm glad he's back now. Yeah, no, it's great to see uh, Coleman, and, and this is really the beginning in this novel, the beginning of the Coleman rap relationship that we have. It runs pretty solid through all the books until present day, right? So, yeah, but initially, Coleman's mission here is to go um, do some reconnaissance and and make sure the Jansons, when they land back at their house in Colorado, are scouted out. And I guess ultimately approach them or take them. But before he can do that, he's set up with um, two of his other SEALs on, on the team, Hackett and Strobel. And from a mountaintop, they look down and see both Jansons come out of their house 
And out of nowhere, they both get hit. They both get shot. They're dead. They see a couple of people escape, I believe, in a car and peel out. And Coleman and crew are just like, holy crap, we got to report this back to uh, Kennedy and the CIA. And so they're wondering who wanted the Jansons killed. And if you figure out who wanted the Jansons killed because they knew too much, we might get down to the bottom of who wanted Rap killed. And that will lead to the leak. Right. And I guess a little bit before this, we on the plane right over, there's this whole debriefing and, and Hackett and Strobel are, which you mentioned to me, you think that sounds like a good name for a law firm? Oh, of course, yeah. sounds like a law firm. Uh, when, Coleman, uh, when Coleman brings in Hackett and Strobel, I'm like, what do they have? Like, uh, call 1-800-Hackett-and-Strobel for uh, asbestos. Yeah, Hackett and Strobel sound like, you know, an asbestos law firm. <laughs> but uh, they're doing a lot more than that. Yeah, so they... <laughs> Hackett, Coleman, and Strobel. Yeah, all right. So on the plane, they're debriefing, and they want to know like a little bit more about this mission. And Coleman doesn't at first like want to tell them all the details, but tells them like we need to be careful because this involves Iron Man, and, and you know Iron Man that that alias or that call name means you know carries some weight with it, and to know that if something happened to Iron Man because of these people, then they aren't to be messed with. And then also when they show up to the house, they notice that they're getting ready to, to leave, even though they, they just got back, right? So they're like, why, you know, something's, something's fishy about this. And then boom, when they're doing the surveillance, they see someone take them out. And in that little debrief on the plane, we get this really, really nice story, which, which hooked me of how rap is ultimately gonna be linked to Coleman. And Coleman is telling Hackett and Strobel, you guys really shouldn't shouldn't feel easy about this mission because Iron Man's involved. They're like, Iron Man, how do you know Iron Man? And we hear that Coleman, who's friends with Michael O'Rourke, right? Our, our, our character from Term Limits. We get Michael, we get the O'Rourke's are brought into the story. Yeah, we get the O'Rourke's back uh, as well in this book. But Coleman is saying, so I'm friends with the O'Rourke's and we were at a baseball game. We were at a Baltimore Orioles game. And Michael O'Rourke's wife at that time now, Liz, is best friends with Anna from college. And so Anna and Liz are still close and therefore Michael O'Rourke knows Anna's boyfriend, Mitch Rapp. And at the baseball game, Michael O'Rourke introduces Rapp and Coleman who happen to, to see each other at the game. And here's the description Vince gives us. Coleman, who O'Rourke could easily say was one of the most unflappable people he had ever met, looked as if he had seen a ghost when he was introduced to rap. It lasted for a second tops and then Coleman quickly recovered, but O'Rourke had seen it. Rap of course showed nothing, not even the slightest hint that he had the former Navy seal had a, that he and the former Navy seal had a connection, but Coleman had flinched. I mean, we're going to see a partnership of these two Titans, right? One, a Navy seal and one, a super CIA trained counterterrorism operative yet, Right from the get-go, we know Rap has the upper hand. In this meeting, they both knew of each other's reputations, but Coleman was the one who flinched and gave away that he was hesitant about meeting Rap in the flesh, where fl- uh, Rap gave him nothing, gave Coleman nothing, not a single read. Right. And I thought this was a nice way to sort of bring in a little bit more characters from Term Limits. You know, he sort of built his universe in Term Limits, but didn't have Rap in it, right? And then now he's slowly weaving in these little tidbits from there. 
and I, I'm not 100% sure if we ever see the O'Rourke's. We might maybe see the O'Rourke's like one more time, but you know, obviously we see Coleman, you know, through the rest of the series, and I thought this was a nice way to sort of begin that widening the universe with rap in it. Yeah, and on that note, in term limits, I mean, I really like the O'Rourke's a whole lot. Uh, they were great characters. And by the end of the book, Coleman, even though he was this assassin, you know, killing U.S. government officials, you still really liked how he operated and what he stood for in, in some sense. And so what a, um, what a risk, right, for Vince to say, I'm going to write Transfer of Power, my second book, and put those characters that you really loved in the, in the passenger seat. And I'm going to make a whole new character to bring into this world, Mitch Rapp. And what a risk, right? But he nailed it. We loved rap. We loved these old characters. And now in his third book, he's bringing them all together. So it's, if you look at this as an arc of three books, it's like, it's really impressive that Term Limits, which a lot of people write off as a non-rap book, ends up being a rap book because they all know him and, you know, bring him into their universe. And then this one scene about the baseball game, I think is just masterful in how you bring it all together. So Mitch has made his way out of Germany into France, and he, he does a, a couple of detours. I think he goes to some islands in the Caribbean, maybe Martinique, and he's on a vacation. And again, we see him working his clandestine skills. He sneaks out of the airport talking with uh, a couple of ladies that he had met and befriending them to go through security and escape the cameras. Right, because his alias is this uh, software you yes. know, executive, right? Or software... Uh, salesman and yep. he's pretty you know good at it and makes a lot of all this money so eventually makes his way back into the u.s under this alias and is going through the airport skillfully so he won't be detected and there's only one person he feels right now he can turn to to know what to do next and that is marcus demand yeah one of my favorite characters and i love the little every time because you know these books while the series uh, Vince and both Kyle try to make it so you can pick up pretty much pick it up anywhere. But so anytime Marcus is, is introduced, they give that a little bit of intro about how he was so smart. He stole this money. And the only reason that he was caught because he got drunk and, and blabbed to the wrong person. But I love that story. I don't know why, I don't know why I do, but it just it makes him seem like a badass. but he, he gets drunk. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's reminds me of me. <laughs> Well, he keeps up that persona where over and over rap is asking him to do things. He's like, you really think you, are you able to do that? Like we got to look at cell phone records and, and tower pings. He's like, you know, you'd have to hack into the CIA's computer system in the basement. And rap is always like second guessing. You really think we can do this? And Dumond every time cools a cucumber is like, duh, easy. I already have it. I I'm already have a back door into the, into the CIA computer. He, and then Rap's like, you know, we can't get noticed, right? If you get into the CIA computer, you also have to think about getting out. And Demand is like, duh, I do it every day. <laughs> exactly. I, that, that, that's pretty sick. Yeah. But Rap can't trust yet Kennedy or Stansfield or the CIA if, you know, and so Marcus Dumond is like this hacker working on the fringes and that is somebody he puts his trust in. Right. Then we have Irene Kennedy uh, and Scott Coleman and Thomas Stansfield. They all meet together at his house to brainstorm what just happened uh, in Colorado to the Jansons and to try to figure out who's responsible for this. There's obviously a leak. They obviously wanted Rap dead and they need, to, they need to discover this. And while this is happening, we get probably one of the best scenes, the second best scene of this book I, I liked 
with Mitch now breaking into a Stansfield house and demanding to know, you know, why they ordered the Jansons to kill him. Because still to this point, he thinks that Stansfield and, and Kennedy have put out a, a burn notice on him. And, you know, Irene is telling him, you know, she didn't do it. Uh, and finally, Mitch puts down puts down his weapon and they have a conversation. But I just want to dive a little bit into that scene. Yeah, and I like how Irene stands up and Mitch is like, sit down, because he's trying to control the situation. And Kennedy holds her ground and looks at him and goes, no, you got to listen to me. We had nothing to do with this. We did not want you killed. Uh, the Jansons, who you knew as the Hoffmans, they turned on you and somebody's working all of us. And uh, Kennedy convinces him. She really, she really holds her ground on that. But you're right. This, I actually might like this more than the German, Germany scene and the escape with the bikes. That is awesome. I mean, we see rap. I'm wondering what he's doing. He goes to a, like an animal shelter and picks up. Yeah, a like a pita. Yeah, he, and he picks up a dog named Shirley. And I'm like. And he wants a dog that like doesn't bark, right? Exactly. I'm like, is this rap's way of getting out? He's just going to go pick up a dog, go home to Anna and be like, yo, I'm home. We got a dog now. I'm like, is that really what he thinks getting out is going to look like? It was, it would be kind of naive. And, but boy, was I the naive one. He, he takes the dog running on a trail through Northern Virginia uh, up in McLean. So right near uh, Langley. So literally on the outskirts of the CIA campus at Langley and um, running on a trail behind the house he lets his dog off the leash and it runs up into the property, trips the alarms and the dog eventually forces one of the guards to come out the back door and the guards playing with the dog. Like, Oh, that's why the alarm was tripped giving rap the chance to say, Oh, Nimitz, where are you? You know, he calls the dog Shirley Nimitz and um, approach the officer. And so the officer let his guard down, just thinking this is a random stray dog with uh, his owner. Isn't Nimitz also like a class of... Of um, aircraft carriers, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, the Nimitz class, yeah. Yeah, he purposely calls him Nimitz so that way he can, you know, the dog won't come to him. So he, he's allowed to like now walk onto, you know, the lawn. And he knows that sort of Stansfield and like a lot of Americans feel secure with this like substandard security and he knows he can exploit it. This, the bodyguard is not super well trained. And it's interesting that we see this quite a bit in, in the future series with uh, bodyguards of Irene Kennedy when, when she eventually becomes, you know, sorry, spoiler alert, when Kennedy becomes the DCI, there's certain instances where her bodyguards are taken out. You know, there's, there's one pretty crazy scene where her bodyguards are taken out. Um, we'll get to that in, when we get to that book. But that's kind of interesting that the DCI doesn't have better security guards. <laughs> He, uh, I think he even, he teaches the guard a lesson, you know, he knocks him out, uh, but then he drags him in and uses him as a shield. I think he has him pull his pants down and tie his belt yeah. around his ankles to make sure he doesn't run or anything. And uh, Rap uses him as a shield to uh, enter the house and confront Stansfield Kennedy. And he learns Coleman is there. And Rap is like, is that the guy who they want to come after me? And so Rap is even more suspicious thinking they're hiring Coleman as a killer to come after him. Right, right. He even shoots like the pillow, yep, like right below or right where Coleman is, right above where Coleman is. Anyways, like showing that you know I could have hit you if I wanted to, or I'm not someone to mess with. 
another device where Rap one-ups Coleman when Coleman might want to try taking command of the situation. That's his instinct. Rap shoots him, you know, right around his leg and into the pillow to say, uh-uh, I got you cornered. Yeah, and so after they end up all working together, Stansfield, Kennedy, Rap, and Coleman are trying to deduce what's going on. A couple of scenes later, Kennedy is called to testify in front of the House Intelligence Committee, and they really want to grill her. Everyone knows Stansfield is dying. There's discussions of who is going to be the next uh, DCI, the leader of the CIA. And so they really want to call Kennedy in, get her on record and crucify her. So they ask her straight up, were you or the CIA involved in any way in the death of Count Hagenmiller in Germany? And Flynn writes, quote, Kennedy did not blink. She did not waver. She had just committed a felony. It wasn't the first time, and it wouldn't be the last time. I love that sentence. I love it. She obviously told the committee, no, flat-faced, no, we had nothing to do with it. And uh, great writing. I think as a DCI, you kind of have to, you have to do that. Yep. She committed a felony and it wouldn't be the last. And that's something she probably learned from Stansfield, right? Like over the years, just she knew when Stansfield was lying and when he wasn't. And um, she had to learn that. She's ready. I forget where it is we learn about this, but one thing that Stansfield has sort of done to sort of counteract the fact that he does have to lie, right? He lies. The politicians have to question him because that's their job. A lot of times he's doing jobs because the politicians have told him they want him to, but that meetings never happened, right? Earlier on, when the president like meets with Kennedy, right? She's like, this, ne- this meeting, I never talked to you. And this meeting never happened, you know, and then he goes plays golf. So one of the things that Stansfield does to counteract that is to have all these files on these politicians, on these players. So that way they can't just come back and be like, well, you definitely did this because he's going to blackmail them or, you know, it could expose them. So he, he knows more about anyone than anyone else in the world. Yep. And we learned he even has uh a dossier on rap, which is a big surprise at the end. Yep. While all this is playing, we have sort of our bad guys, Senator Clark, the politicians that he's involved with, and the professor who we learn to be Peter Cameron, who is ex-CIA. Didn't really like that dude, but I wanna, we'll talk about that in the next episode. So back in Washington, Senator Clark meets with Albert Rudin and this Rudin guy has a huge problem with the CIA and he knows that Stansfield's dying and doesn't want, wants to replace the director and doesn't want to, wants to make sure that Irene Kennedy is not the person to be hired. But Clark tells him not to worry because, you know, Kennedy's going to self-destruct. Yeah. So we learn working in the background this whole time is this shady Senator who's a Republican Senator Clark, who has ambitions of his own of moving up and eventually scheming to become president and he's working with these two democrats and they're all trying to scheme and he's trying to do reverse psychology on them so it's not like he's telling them you can't confirm irene kennedy but he's planting seeds so that they won't and that they learn to hate her and not trust her in the job and all this is all this is happening at congressional country club so you know i've actually golfed in that area. And there's a, there's a public golf course I go to across the street. It's out in uh, Potomac, Maryland. Yeah. 30 minutes Northwest of the city. 
I'm always looking at Congressional Country Club when I drive out and I'm like, oh, I got to go to this Montgomery County public course over here, play nine holes. And over here is the most luxurious, exclusive country club in the region, if not the country. My high school has um, dramatic association and every year there's an end of the year banquet and it's held at the Congressional Country Club. So three years, I was in the Gonzaga Dramatic Association for three years and I got to go there three times. It's super nice yeah so the, the the clubhouse is super nice and i remember sitting out on the the deck and looking at the the uh, 18th green and and the first whole tee box that was pretty cool this was before i got into golf that's unreal that's just another one of those moments where um it would make sense that they go here and have a secret lunch you know in the clubhouse like to me it's very believable we learned though that um senator clark outside of his meetings with these politicians is also meeting with another individual known as the professor and that's peter cameron who is this very oddly described character who is both he's former cia so he has enough chops to uh you know play the game but at the same time he's not really experienced in the field as he was in intelligence and so he's teaching courses at gw so he's kind of straddling if you think the third option right he's straddling this game of being in academia having a public persona and being known as a professor. And he not so skillfully also uses that same title when he tries to get involved in clandestine work off to the side with Senator Clark. And so he's already set up to be quite foolish using the term professor, which gives away that he's an actual professor at GW. He was in the forest behind rap in Germany. He was the one uh, hired by Clark to turn the Janssens or the Hoffmans against rap and ultimately take him out and frame him at the scene to expose the CIA. And so Clark is controlling Cameron and Cameron was controlling the Jansons. And we have this chain of people that was supposed to lead to a terrible nightmare for the CIA getting exposed and ultimately, you know, giving Clark the authority on the intelligence committee to gut the whole CIA and start fresh with people they appoint. So now we know who's behind this whole thing. Right. Only one problem, they didn't kill Mitch Rapp. And even though Peter Cameron was spying on the Hoffmans or, you know, the Jansons the whole time to make sure they did their mission. So obviously this guy like has some, you know, he's not the greatest because he obviously led on to Mitch that he was there, but he's decent because he didn't get caught. Uh, or maybe he just ran away when once he saw that Mitch was like ducking down, like, you know, Well, another way he's um, not even that professional is he's so eager chomping at the bit to say, I want to be the one to pull the trigger on the Jansons, where I think someone in the services, like just think Irene Kennedy and Thomas Stansfield, we never once hear them being ambitious or eager to jump in. And what a misstep because he's working with some really experienced assassins and his background that he is a professor on is the intelligence side of things. Yeah, And so his over eagerness to be the one to pull the trigger, be in the scene, it actually pisses off Senator Clark, his boss. He says, what are you doing? Get involved in all this. I hire you to hire the guys to do this and keep our name out of it. Why are you on the scene jeopardizing our connection? And Cameron is just always this wishy-washy like, oh, I wanted to get more involved. I wanted to, but ultimately um, that exposes him because he's also working with this guy, uh, Vilam and Coleman is able to observe 
this car and get away and have some intelligence. And along with Marcus Dumond looking at cell phone records and everything, they're ultimately able to ping that this assassin Villam, who's worked with rap before is in connection with another guy uh, right. out there. And they put all the pieces together and rap wants to contact Villam and hear who is, who are you calling the shots? Who's making these phone calls? because Dumond has seen that his phone is getting pinged from the same area down in Foggy Bottom, D.C. Right. I thought it was interesting, too, how he even mentions that, you know, he'd never killed a, a, a person before, and he was so excited to do that, right? And that, that was just super creepy to me. Like, this whole, this whole time, Cameron gave me these creepy vibes. I always picture him exactly how Vince Flynn uh, describes him as this, like, pudgy guy who tries to be a spy, you know, put in like Zach Galifianakis <laughs> trying to be Mitch Rapp. <laughs> That's it. That's you it. know, you nailed the professor right there. I think Zach Galifianakis would be a, a great professor. Even like a Zach Galifianakis from the hangover, you know, <laughs> trying so to the whole time I'm, I'm, reading this book that's that's who i was picturing that's really funny you know another thing about their inexperience is the professor and clark just keep going into the same cycle of we used an assassin now we've got to kill him because they know too much right yeah and it's like this throwaway culture of you never hear kennedy and stansfield taking someone they've worked with and completely discarding them saying they're meaningless right they have to terminate people as they go but they never have these off-color discussions around, this person's useless, they did a mission for us, let's get rid of them. They value their people, right? We see Senator Clark and the professor over and over just saying, oh, this one completed that mission, get rid of them, we'll hire someone else. And so they hire this guy, Deucer, right? And Deucer has this rap of just wanting to spray bullets and come in hot, come in heavy, and just his crime scenes are always a mess, right? Yeah, that, that's we then jump right into the scene yep. where... In, in Baltimore, right, where you have Mario. He was another henchman uh, of, that they used. With Villam, yep. Uh, he's walking down the street. He sees this beautiful woman, and but something like sort of in his mind, you know, he's an operator. Something sort of ticks, but he turns around, and too late, she pulls a gun. He's able to kill her, but then dudes are like sort of, and his men just spray bullets everywhere. And, of course, it's like the front page of the Baltimore you know news and that's not what hank clark wanted you know no. and that's what rap even picks up on i forget who it was if it was marcus or scott but they come to rap and say yeah, there was this big shooting with all these bullets everywhere and actually a guy we think you might know died mario lucas and so the whole scene where mario lucas is taken out by deucer and his men is just for me at least it was something i didn't like about the book where we're getting this sequence of assassins and hitmen that just get taken out and on to the next too quickly. But I guess that's the point because it shows that this scheme the professor is running is not super professional, that he's right. going out of bounds. He's, you know, making a lot of missteps here. Right. And then this leads us to Hank Clark having another meeting with, you know, his political players and again, forcing this idea of trying to oppose Irene Kennedy you know, stop her from becoming boss. They're actually going to be breaking away from the party because both of these are Democrats and the president is a Democrat. He thinks that his plan, you know, for the most part is going well. And he encourages uh, Rudin to actually 
you know, continue to grill Irene about this whole, you know, Count Hagemiller thing. And then finally, Cameron meets up with Clark and he tells the senator that he recorded a conversation between Mitch and Anna. Hank tells him to get into Hannah's apartment, find out as much information as possible. However, you know, Clark is not really happy with this whole situation. You know, he, he thinks that Cameron is sort of messing it up. And this leads to his thinking of, I need to get rid of Cameron <laughs> and puts in this order through like mail-in order through Mossad to get this assassin who we have our first introduction into Donatella Ron, who again, will make appearances later on in the series and obviously has history with rap. All of that to me was just more of this throwaway culture of you got to just get rid of Cameron. He messed up and Hank Clark is just going to be on to the next and they bring in Donatella and it got very murky. But I also thought it was when Vince has wanted to get this Donatella Ron character into the story. Yeah. And he thought he jumped on, this is how I do it because she obviously she has that connection to Mitch. She plays a role later on in, in a couple other books, or at least you know two other books, right? And then even further on, when 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 Kyle Mills takes over it, she comes back into the fold, right? So, this is an important character that he wanted to bring into the fold, and this was how he did it with Senator being so ruthless. Yeah. So we bring her in, and and I don't mind that so much, but it all just for the midsection of this book got got clunky. It got a little clunky and murky. And it was something that drew me out of the story where I, I actually halfway through, it was probably a couple of hundred pages in. I go, where's rap? He was doing some things with Marcus, but for a while I was like, where's rap? And I want him to do something now, you know, a little selfish of me as a reader, but I, I lost that drive for a second. I actually put in the notes somewhere I was taking. I was like, uh, kind of haven't seen rap do anything cool in a little while, which it's cheap if you just have, that as your single way of writing, but I'm, I actually missed it here. It's not something I think Vince has to give us all the time. His stories are so great and grand and complex. That's what makes them awesome. This one might've teetered a little bit too heavy on the complexity for me at this particular point in time. We then jump to Scott Coleman and Mitch Rapp. They've joined forces through figuring out that Beyond was involved in the hit on the Jansons. Mitch calls him and asked him some questions. And because they had this history in the past, he trusts Rab a little bit and says, I don't know who this guy is, but he's called the professor and here's his number. So Mitch is able to use this number to call uh, the professor and bluff him. And because he's so bad at, at negotiations and, and the spycraft that he's actually able to get a one up on, on the professor in that moment. And I love those phone calls. I think there's a few of them between yeah. Rap and the professor. And the professor is just, you know, scared. It looks like he's seen a ghost. You could tell in the writing. At one point, Rap makes a bluff and says, I know it was you behind me in the forest. I had you the whole time. I could have killed you if I wanted to. And meanwhile, the professor's thinking, I thought I was tracking you and could have killed you anytime. Maybe Rap had the upper hand this whole time, which is mostly a bluff, but it shows Rap's skill. Right, definitely. Again, though, this is where Rap doesn't know yet that they're targeting Anna, that the the long game is to take Anna from Rap in order to lure him in. Rap doesn't know that yet, so he's still contemplating getting out. We even get a quote that says, for the first time in his life, Rap was filled with doubt. Doubt over whether or not he should just walk away, whether they would let him walk away. 
He knew the answer to all those questions, but at this moment, he didn't feel like admitting it. All he wanted was Anna to put all of this behind him and live a normal life. That quote made me stop and say like, Mitch Rapp's human. <laughs> like, in the thick of this, before the plot really thickens and Anna gets involved as a hostage, Rapp's kind of like, I'm done. It, that storyline is still being played out. While that's happening, the professor makes his move and has uh, some people under, uh, I think it was government plates yeah. and uh, fake FBI identification take Anna and Anna right. trusts them. She looks at the license plate and she says, Oh yeah, you know, you're, you're with the FBI. And they say, yeah, we're going to take you to go see Mitch. Right. This whole time Anna has been with the O'Rourke's right early on. Mitch was able to send a, an encrypted email to Michael to say, Hey, can you go to my house and get Anna? You know, sort of uh, some fluff chapters where you have these interactions with Liz and, and Michael and, and Anna and Michael's like, who is Mitch? And what does he do? And, and Anna's like, I'm not telling you. Like, yeah, this is all culminated with her being taken. Yeah, later on, um, Rap is going to go meet up with the O'Rourke's and say thank you for hanging on to Anna. And he's he's hoping it's his big moment to reunite with her now that he knows he can trust uh, the players in the U.S. a little bit more and doesn't have to watch his back for the CIA everywhere he goes. And he goes to me with Michael and Michael's, they're having a chat and Michael's like, just be honest with me. And so Rap clues him in a little bit saying, you know, what he does. And then O'Rourke lets slip this little tiny line that says, oh yeah, Anna's not here. They picked her up to go take her to see you. And Rap's like, to see me? Nobody in, in the FBI or the government knows where I am. And so now right. Rap changes, not the sentimental, oh, I want to get out. I'm done, Rap. Now we have whole hog. Badass Rap. The badass Rap. And he gets so enraged, Coleman even has to pull him aside. They're about to start a mission to head towards his house where he finds out Anna's being held. And he is ready to go. Coleman has to pull him aside. He has to put him in check. And Coleman's, Scott says, just calm down for a second. You need to know when to let go, Mitch. This thing's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. You can't have your emotions getting in the way of us making the right call. What do you think about that, Scott? Telling Mitch straight up, you got to check yourself. I, I mean, I think like only Coleman could could do that. And I think that Raph's response where, where he says, you know, if anytime you think I'm blowing this thing, you let me know. I respect your judgment and I'll listen with one exception. Every last one of these motherfuckers is dead and don't try to talk me out of it. You know, he respects who Coleman is. He respects that. All right. I'm getting too frustrated or I'm putting too much of my emotions into this and, you know, feel free to pull me out of it because anytime you, you put emotion into it, like you're, you're taken out of your, your heightened senses or you you might make a wrong judgment call with one exception. He's killing these guys. Yep. I, I love that. You mentioned their relationship in this book really coming together quite well. Oh yeah. Blossoms. It, it really does. And that, that dialogue there, it's like two lines for each of them, but it's Coleman is the right guy to be able to tell Mitch, Hey, check yourself, slow down. And Rap knows he could trust Coleman and say, I accept your judgment. I'm okay with that. You're right. But just give me this. And Coleman knows I'm going to give him that. It's like this give and take balance, which works out perfectly. Uh, the two complement each other so well. I feel like oftentimes throughout the series, Coleman is like the, the he's more grounded. Yeah. Even though in, in term limits, he was portrayed as like, yeah. it's almost as if like, I, sometimes I just forget about Coleman as the bad guy in term limits. And I think of him as a completely different character. Yeah. Um, 
Stansfield might have done that to him, you know, like in term limits, Coleman was single minded. I'm going to kill whoever it takes, including the US government, maybe Stansfield bringing him into the fold and saying, let's cut a deal. And being that mentor kind of let Coleman know, I can trust people within the government. And there is this third option out there, which is going to solve problems. And so maybe Coleman kind of cooled his jets a little knowing the CIA is actually taking care of business. I don't have to be this firebrand going off on my own, you know, assassinating people. I think Coleman was kind of welcomed into the fold in a gentle way by Stansfield and found that trust. Right. So we, we start to reach our the climax of, of the book where, you know, Mitch and Coleman, they, they, they realize that Anna's at the house. They, they even use like thermal imaging on, on helicopters, right. To, yep. to see, uh, they come in like really, you know, low and, and can see that there's one sort of smaller heat signature up top. That's probably Anna. And then these other ones down below, and so they're sur- surveying and then one person leaves in a car. So Mitch decides to follow that person. And this guy goes to the gas station and they pull him into his van. And what do they do to him, Mike? Yeah, well, this is pretty good. It also shows how much of amateurs they are, right? Anna's up oh, in yeah. the, the bedroom. And they, I think two guys are downstairs watching TV and this other one goes out for coffee or something. It's like, what kind of game are these guys playing? They deserve to get embarrassed. And if they... My problem with that, right, is that, okay, I believe the fact that they wanted to be fake FBI agents to get her. As soon as they get to the house, if I'm Clark or the professor who really don't give a shit about Mitrap or Anna, right, I'm tying her up. Yeah. I'm not letting her, like, go upstairs and go to bed. So that's the problem, though, because the professor is scared he's scared out of his wits by rap. So I think the professor is giving specific instructions. Don't harm her. Uh, like, cause the guards would go ham, right? Like they go nuts. Like, sure. Hostage. Um, especially if they're just hired assassins. I think the professor being so scared of rap in the back of his mind is checking himself just by reputation and his threats on the phone. I, I, I get that they're told not to, but in my mind, that's not the play that I would have done if I was in that situation because my goal was to kill rap. Um, and obviously they, he's shown, you know, and sort of no, he doesn't really care about who he kills. Right. So, and, and even Doozer, like, did you get this little bit of a thing that like Doozer sort of like was the sexual predator with Anna? Like, yeah, you Doozer said a couple of weird things, but again, I think the professor kept him in check and was trying to pull rank there. Just knowing if you want to lure in rap, you want a rap coming in on the softer side, you don't want a rap coming in knowing that on you the hard side, physically True. or sexually assault her. True. Because once, he, once rap hears that game over, over. and we yeah. know the professor scared out of his wits from those phone calls, he was shaking in his boots. But um, right. yeah. so anyway, rap has this guy at the gas station who's giving him Intel on the ground in the house. And rap says, I'm going to offer you one chance. You go back with the coffees. You walk into the house, act like everything's normal so I can get a read on the situation. You don't stir the pot at all. I'll give you a chance to live. But here's my insurance policy. If you so much as spill the beans, you so much as tip off the guys in the house that I'm behind you, he rigs C4 in the guy's underwear tied up to his balls. And he tells him one misstep or word out of you to tip off these guys. I'm blowing your crotch off right there. And the dude walks into the house with C4 tied around his nuts. <laughs> oh my God. That was great. I, that was great. 
All right. All right. You know, I'm going to be a little harsh on this book at times, but um, things like that, just what better candy for a thriller fan, right? Yeah, no, that, that was a nice, nice little touch. That's it. Well, rap comes in, you know, clears these guys out and it's kind of cut scene. He says, I'm going to go upstairs with Anna now. Yeah. So they rescued her and they're back. Mitch reclaimed his house, his own property. Which is a property that is, is we see a lot in the, in the beginning of the story. Yeah, we do. You know, it also hearing the description of the house reminded me of term limits. There's, I think, two houses on the Chesapeake Bay in term limits because they're out east of Washington. You know, I would imagine toward, I think just south of Annapolis, they might say, but it reminded me of two houses from term limits. We had Nance's house and we also had Arthur Higgins' house. And so I'm wondering if, again, thinking this theme of term limits was Vince's first attempt at creating characters and creating settings. He is drawing them back in to connect the story to the rap saga now. Right. I love later on in the series, the house that rap builds with his whole entire crew in Manassas. They actually go. Oh um, yeah. They, he gets like a cold compound where his, yep. because his brother's like filthy rich too. And he yep. then sells each plot for like a dollar yep. to, you know, Mike Nash and Scott Coleman. And, you know, I, you can just imagine who the hell's living in that compound. Probably the most secure compound ever. Yep. That complex built out in Manassas where rap lives for a couple of these books is just, uh, it's awesome. That That is yeah. cool when we get there. But back to this story, things start to wrap up with um, Mitch going to find the professor. Yeah. They have really good intel of who he is. He's this professor at GW. They know where his office is. They're going into the building and as they walk down the hallway, they see a lady passing them and Rap does a double take. Coleman doesn't yeah. pick up on it, but Rap does a double take, thinks he knows her. And when they get to the professor's office. She stabs him with an ice pick, Mike. An ice pick through the ear, right? Was yeah, through, through the, the ear. ear. That, was, yeah. that was vicious. Oh, man. So we already know that Donatella, you know, she's got the goods as a massage trained. Uh, she's a badass massage agent. Yeah. Or not an agent, but contract killer. But yeah. Yeah. But trained by them. Yep. So rap is thinking she must've been involved. And then he puts it together. That's Donatella and rap in some inner dialogue lets us know, I'm not going to expose this to anybody, but what the heck is Donatella? Someone who I've had previous relations with doing here. Why did she kill right. the professor? And he, he basically writes it off saying, I'm going to have to take this up with her in Italy because that's where I'm going to find her later. It's a good setup for the next book yep. uh, where, you know, we, we start off the next book. Boom. Yep. Here's a picture of this lady. Who is she? Mitch knows who he, she is. And then the story unfolds. Yeah. I couldn't believe that Mitch was just going to bite the bullet, right? The guy, the professor who masterminded capturing Anna and Mitch gets this clue of Donatella being there. It was hard for me to imagine. He's just going to table that and file it away. I, I feel like I wanted him and Coleman just to go whole hog find her hunter down but i guess as we know rap has something that he doesn't want to be exposed so he doesn't right. jump into action at the moment we don't know that he has his history so it was kind of um we don't know that he has like all like all of this history he, he does hint though i think sexual they've had a sexual past but that's all we we hear which that's all we hear so yeah and, and but he knows that if he, he if he tells coleman then that immediately lets the cat the coleman's gonna go the try to find her immediately yep And Kennedy will be brought into the fold as well. And the CIA will be working on it. Yep. Mitch can run it essentially on his own terms. On his own, as long as he's patient. Right. And maybe that talking Coleman gave him earlier about, you know, 
calm your emotions, stay in the game, be level-headed. It helps him have the foresight here to, you know, cool his jets and, uh, and lay off for another time. I mean, the professor's dead, right? So justice has already been served to the guy who masterminded this. And well, not the guy who completely masterminded it. That would be Senator Clark, but the guy who at least ran the operations. Right. So we, we finish off the book with the president on a warpath. He first meets with Milton and forces his resignation, which then ultimately causes him to commit suicide. Um, and then secondly, he gives a huge chewing, at, chewing out of uh, Rudin. President Hayes is a you know, senior member of the party, and he has the ability to do this to lower members of the party. He makes it clear to, to back off and that I don't need you going behind my back doing anything to damage our party's reputation. And he references the meeting at Congressional, showing him the, right. the upper hand. He goes, what the heck were you doing meeting with a ranking Republican senator behind my back with behind the party's back at a country club? I think they were in a basement or something. And um, he reams them out. And then finally, we get the scene where the president and Mitch and Stansfield and Kennedy offer him, you know, this third option that you mentioned earlier, how he doesn't have to be a black operator, you know, it doesn't have to be sort of hidden operator anymore. He can be out in the open and be coming to the fold in the CIA um, and join, become the new head of counterterrorism. Yeah. And this scene, it just tears, it pulls at your heartstrings. We didn't really get into too much the description of Stansfield in his final days, um, how much of a warrior he is at the same time as being extraordinarily frail physically and bodily. But he says, I am suiting up to go to the Oval Office, I will always suit up. And right. he takes this meeting with dignity, as hard as it is physically, knowing that he's dying. And he calls Mitch by his first name. He says, Mitchell, I'd like to start by saying that I've been in this business for more than 50 years. And I don't know if I've seen anyone as talented and courageous as yourself. Rap looked at Stansfield and replied with a silent nod. The words from the dying legend were worth more than any medal his government could ever give him. Powerful, deep. <sighs> yeah, I love that. I, I mean, their relationship, I, I want to talk about it. We can talk about it maybe next book, or we can talk about it more during American Assassin. But, you know, their relationship is, is a pretty deep one. Obviously, he has a great relationship with uh, Stan Hurley, who, you know, trained him, Mitch and sort of a loathing relationship with, with, with Hurley. But Stansfield, He's this old dog from the Wild Bill Donovan age. You know, he, he was behind the Iron Curtain. Like, he, he looks up to this guy. Mitch actually respects this guy. And I don't think Mitch, Mitch respects a lot of people the way that he respects Thomas Stansfield. Yeah. So. And meanwhile, Rap just gives a silent nod and says, worth more than any other medal, any other publicity, any other honor, just simply knowing that this legend called me the most talented and courageous individual he's ever known. You know, that is just motivation for rap enough. It says something about how we all accept praise or, you know, uh, honor. And instead of desiring that publicly rap is so reverential and how he, he receives that from a dying man. And it means more to him than anything else in the world. Love it. You know, it's interesting when you think about like uh, at the CIA, right? They have that wall of, of stars that are unnamed, that represent people in the, any sort of 
CIA service, but mostly the clandestine service that have passed away that, you know, they can't um, divulge their secrets because, you know, it's taught or like their names or whatever. And it just gets you thinking that people who are in this line of work, even like people in the military, you know, these people are never going to get the kind of praise that they really truly deserve. So it makes you pause and think about that. Yep. Well, that's the third option. I'm excited to explore some of those themes with you on our next episode as we wrap up our discussion of the book. And we're even going to share our winners and losers. We will tell you what we liked, what we didn't like, and we'll give our final ratings of the book. You'll see what Chris and I thought on this book, the third option. Right. And look out for our Twitter poll on the covers of this book. Mike's going to be posting that soon. And then after that, we're going to be making a brief but exciting announcement about how you can help support us on this podcast. If, if you really are enjoying what we're doing, digging what we're putting down uh, and get exclusive access to some additional content. So stay tuned for that. Please, as always, subscribe, rate and review us using your favorite podcasting platform. You can find us online at our website at mitchreppod.com or using our Twitter handle at mitchreppod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we are just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.